So think back to a time in your life when you felt like a misfit. For me, it's not hard. It comes like in a second. Junior high. <laughs> Does anybody actually like junior high? Junior high was absolutely rough for me. I think we've got a picture up here somewhere of me in junior high. Yes. How about that? Huh? I'm the one with hair and the white shirt. <laughs> a handsome kid who does not look like he wants to be in that family photo. I had moved to a small town in third grade, and I was enrolled in an even smaller uh, Christian school. Uh, there were three in my class. And the school was brand new, and it met in a church. My first year, the school offered K through 3, and then the next year, they offered K through 4, and then K through 5, and it grew each year as the kids went up through the grades, and it was called the Alliance Christian School, which sounded weird in a town where schools were named normal things like North and East, <laughs> not the Alliance Christian School. But my name was, my school was named the Alliance Christian School, and I was one of those weird kids. So I was doomed, oh, amen. <laughs> Still living the weird. So I was doomed already to be a weirdo when I went to public school, but then my family moved to Africa, and halfway through my seventh grade year, we came back. I mean, seventh grade and, and going to public school for the first time, and just being seventh grade is hard enough, but now here I was, this weird kid that nobody knew except that I had gone to this weird new school called the Alliance, and I had lived in Africa. I mean, it sounds cool now, but it was not cool when I was in seventh grade, not at all. And I had a few friends that were at the school, those two other girls who had been in my class, which made me even more of a weirdo because all my friends were girls. And I remember so many lunches in the lunchroom just sitting at the table and pretending to still be drinking my milk even though it had long been empty. Because I knew if my lunch was done that I was supposed to pick my tray up and put it back and walk the halls. But for me, walking the halls meant walking the halls by myself. And oftentimes, that meant getting bullied. There were, two, there were two bullies in my class, Ole Ottinger and Paul Behrens. This is like 30 years ago, and I still remember these names, because they regularly tormented me and hit me and pounded me. And ironically, uh, one year, the school police officer, whose name was Frank Bammert, I remembered that this morning, Frank Bammert talked me into being a narc <laughs> because I wasn't doomed already uh, socially. <laughs> And he tried to get, and, he, he, and I fell for it, and he got me to go to Ole Ottinger and Paul Barron's and try to get them to sell me something called Colombian Red, which at the time I had no idea what that was. But I did it, and of course it went horribly, and I got pounded even more. I know this sounds like the premise of a bad sitcom, but it was my life in junior high. Like, just the universe was against me. I felt like a misfit. I was bad at sports, I was bad at life, I didn't know anyone, I didn't know the rules and how to be cool, how to fit in. I was a misfit, and I knew it. There's an, another season in my life where I felt like a misfit. There's a season in my life where I realized that a lot of the things about Christianity that I grew up hearing, that I grew up believing, I, I simply didn't believe anymore. I had significant doubts and questions, and, and frankly, some anger about some of the the ways in which those things were taught to me. But when I was with Christians, when I went to church, I felt like a misfit. Like I didn't fit because I couldn't check off all the boxes of believing all of the right things. And if I couldn't check the boxes, I couldn't fit. And I don't think anyone at my church as a kid or anybody in the churches that I went through ever meant to make me feel that way. But I think one of the things we can do easily as Christians is, is, is we, 
become a place where, where it's not safe to bring questions and doubts and disbelief. Where it's not safe to, to not agree with everything. Where it's not safe to, to hold some of these things loosely. And so instead, we, church becomes this place where we show up and we put on a happy face and we smile and we nod. Even though we don't necessarily believe a lot of the things that are being taught. We sing the songs because that's what you do, even though they're increasingly becoming less and less true, perhaps, in our lives. Maybe no one ever meant to make me feel that way, but I was a misfit, and I knew it. Unfortunately, God has an awful lot to say to misfits and about misfits in his word. We're in a series called God of the Misfits, in fact, reading through the Christmas story as told in the gospel book of Matthew. And this story is absolutely chock full of misfits, people that just didn't fit in or who had done terrible things and were outcasts, people who didn't fit society's mold or religion's mold. And yet God chooses to make them absolutely central to his story. God could have chosen to reveal himself any way he wanted. He could have come in with guns blazing, you know, with lightning crashing and armies charging. He could have come in power and majesty and overthrown the oppressive political systems of this world. But he chose to come to reveal himself, his very character, through this ragtag band of misfits that no one would have ever expected. I think we need to ask the question, why would God choose to reveal himself in this way? Why does Matthew, the author, choose to present Jesus, present God this way? And what does that tell us about the character of God, the heart of God? Over the last few weeks, we've seen how Matthew, the author of this book and a disciple of Jesus, was himself a misfit, as Chris pointed out last week or two weeks ago. Virtually every time, the two times that Matthew refers to himself in the book, it's to point out that he was a misfit. It was to point out the ways that he had disqualified himself through the terrible things that he had done. Matthew was a tax collector. He, he had betrayed his people. He had sold out to the Roman Empire, and he was collecting their blasphemous taxes and skimming off the top for himself. This guy was hated by the Romans and by the Jews. This was an absolute misfit, and yet at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus chooses Matthew to be one of his closest friends and disciples of all the qualified religious people out there, Jesus chooses Matthew. Jesus called him and said, Matthew, come and see for yourself the way life can be. Come and see yourself the way God sees you. And through Matthew, Jesus then became a friend of sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, surrounding himself with misfits. And Matthew opens up, his book with Jesus' genealogy. And the list of people is absolutely full of misfits. It's prostitutes and Gentiles and killers and adulterers. We all have family in our past that we'd like to forget about or don't claim, right? But rather than burying it, Matthew actually lists them. And if, just in case we've missed it, he actually qualifies each time he lists it with what makes them a misfit. You know, the son of, of Solomon and Bathsheba, who had been Uriah's wife, he qualifies it each and every time. Then Matthew shows us that Joseph and Mary were misfits, a young and unmarried couple who had done nothing wrong. In fact, they were faithful and obedient to God, but they were being rejected by everyone for what appeared to be a scandal, an unplanned pregnancy. 
They were misfits. It's almost like the whole Christmas story is a bust. Like God chose to reveal himself, to enter into our world in such a manner that he automatically and immediately disqualifies himself, his credibility into the culture in which he's speaking. Why? It would have made so much more sense for God to, to, to come in and establish, re, reestablish Israel as the dominant military and political power and then get everything in order and then have Jesus miraculously appear once everything was set up and he could just be the king over all of it. That would have made so much more sense. It would have made more sense for God to cause revival, to break out into the temple and to have the priest turn back to God and repent. And, and then once everything was cleaned out, Jesus could come in as the perfect high priest and rule over the temple. That would have made so much more sense. But he doesn't. Why? Why not reveal himself first to the powerful people, to the religious people? And then Matthew, after listing these misfits, goes in a direction that appears to make even less sense. Instead of God introducing himself through the political leaders and through the religious leaders, the very next characters that we're introduced to in his book are themselves misfits. Let's read again. In chapter 2, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. So Jesus is born, and the very next verse, the very next people that Matthew introduces us to are misfits, wise men from the east. These are outsiders. These were not worshipers of Yahweh. These are foreigners with a different religion, a different set of values, a different God. And yet that's who Matthew goes to immediately. And so if Matthew is choosing to include that as the very first detail he gives us after, and Jesus was born, I think we have to pause and ask the question, why? Why are we being introduced to these people? And who are they? The truth is, so much about what we know about the wise men is actually fiction. It's lore. It's stuff that the church has added throughout its history that Scripture never does. Stuff like giving them names. Scripture never gives them names. We do. Church tradition has given them the three wise men names like Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar in Western Christianity. Notice how they're all white and have uh, crowns. In the Syrian church, they're called Larvandad, Gushnathoth, and Hermisdas. These are fun trivia things. Save these. Write these down. In the Ethiopian church, they're called Hor, Karsudan, and Bassinator. The Bassinator. <laughs> Armenian Catholics call them Kagfa, Badadakrida, and Badadilma. Yeah, there we go. And those, the, and those are just a couple of the names that I, that I found online. Just a couple examples of how we've created this lore, this history that Scripture doesn't ever give us. We've created that. And while some of it might be true, it can't all be true. I mean, certainly they couldn't have had all of these names. And so it might be helpful to know more who they weren't. For instance, we, we know that they probably weren't a trio. There might have been three of them, or there might have been 50. We don't know. Scripture gives us absolutely no indication. In fact, in Eastern Christianity, the Syriac church, for instance, typically when they tell the story, there are 12 wise men that come, not three. And they weren't kings. We Three Kings of Orient are is a fun Christmas song, but you won't find it anywhere in Scripture. There's nothing in the text that would remotely even imply that. That's something that got added later in church writings when other stuff got added, like names, 
and, and backstories. We have all these stories about you know, who they were and where they came from and then what happened to them after they left. And, and there's communities of people that claim to be the descendants of these three kings. And that's great. It's fun history. It's fun trivia. But none of it's in Scripture. It simply says, wise men from the east. But actually, even that is inaccurate because wise men from the east actually was a phrase that was adopted back in the early 1600s when King James took this phrase and translated it as wise men from the east. But that's actually something of a mistranslation. A more accurate translation, what the text actually calls them is magi, from the Greek magoi, from which we get the words like magic and magician. Historically, it's actually a word that's most often associated with sorcery with the practice of the occult. There's a very good chance, for instance, that these men were actually somewhere in the priestly caste of the Zoroastrian religion that was very, very prominent throughout Persia and Babylon, what is now modern-day Iraq and Iran. We know from other texts, for instance, that that these magi from eastern lands very well uh, were experts in interpreting dreams and various other occult arts, which, by the way, the Old Testament expressly forbid. God made it very, very clear that they were not to engage in those sorts of activities. And so it's interesting, at least to me, maybe I'm a geek on this stuff, but it's interesting to me that that God chose to use those very vehicles to communicate to these people. He spoke to them through these outlaws, these, these, these practices that he had forbidden. He used those very vehicles to draw these men to himself. Matthew doesn't give us a whole lot of details about their name, about their origin, about what happened to them afterwards, but he's very, very clear on these subjects. He's very, very clear in including that, one, God used a star to reach them through their astrology, and that God guided them through dreams because they were professional dream interpreters. I'm not sure what Matthew means by doing that, but if he leads with it, I think we should at least look into that. What does that mean? These magi were pagan priest astrologers who didn't worship Yahweh. They're misfits in the story. And yet they're the very first characters that Matthew points us to and incorporates their religion into the Christmas story. That's interesting, right? So for me, the biggest question isn't how many of there were, what country they came from, or what happened to them afterwards, or what their names were. I mean, that's interesting. But what's far more interesting, the question that, that keeps me up is, why does Matthew include them at all. None of the other gospel writers even mention them. In fact, this is the only place they're mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. So why does Matthew lead with them? I think, again, the text gives us some clues. What did the text claim? What did the, the Magi say they had come to do? Does you remember? Let's read it. They said, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. The text says that they came not to observe him or study him or confirm his birth or report back to their king. It says they came to worship him. I think for Matthew, that is one of the key details that he wants to communicate about the very character of God, about who God is. That God is a God who wants to be worshipped. And these men came wanting to worship. And worship is one of those things that in our culture we don't have a good context for. In fact, we have a lot of baggage about it. It was one of the things that I really struggled with, honestly. It's ironic that I'm in this role because it's one of the things that I really struggled with about the American church. It seemed phony and false. So much of the times the songs sound like love songs to my boyfriend, God. 
And, and I struggled with that. And, and what is it about this God that he wants to be and demands to be worshipped? Is he this egomaniac in the sky? But we are wired. We are created. He made us so that we would worship. And we're going to worship something, whether it's our sports idols or money or our career. And he's saying, no, no. You will be happiest if you are operating within the operating instructions I created. If you worship me and me alone, I am primary. I am the greatest thing in the universe. And you will be happiest if you worship me. God wants to be worshipped. And for Matthew, it's interesting to note that the very first people to recognize Jesus as someone to be worshipped aren't Jewish leaders, aren't government officials, aren't his disciples, aren't any of the people that should have recognized the Messiah for who he was. It's pagan astrologers, Gentiles and pagans. And they're the only ones that worship Jesus for the next 30 plus years in his ministry, according to Matthew. The next account of someone actually worshiping Jesus doesn't happen in Matthew until halfway through Jesus' ministry. As he calls disciples to come, they come, but they don't worship him. When Jesus heals the sick and exercises demons and feeds 5,000 people and all of that, Jesus had lots of people come and follow him. Jesus had lots of fans, but not worshipers. The next time anyone worships Jesus in Matthew, it doesn't come until about chapter 14, not about, in chapter 14, <laughs> when the disciples are in a boat in a storm and they're about to drown and Jesus walks on water and calms the storm and saves them. And in response to that, his disciples say, then the disciples worshiped him. You really are the son of God, they explained exclaimed, rather. Interestingly, Jesus' disciples had actually already been through this. They had already seen Jesus calm the wind and the waves. He had done this trick once before for them back in Matthew chapter 8, but apparently it takes him doing it twice for them to actually be impressed and know who he is. Once wasn't enough. Eventually, Jesus' disciples worship him when he saves their lives, but the first people to worship him are pagan astrologers from a far-off land. And then in this story, and then throughout Matthew, we see that the Jewish scholars, the leaders, the powerful, the informed, who should have recognized the Messiah, don't. And it's the foreigners, and the Gentiles, and the lepers, and the prostitutes, and the misfits that do. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells the religious elites of his age that prostitutes and swindlers are more righteous in the eyes of God than they are. Reading from Matthew 21, it says, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now, let me be clear, it's not, it's not that, that God doesn't have a heart for the religious elite, for the powerful, for the mighty. It's, it's, it's that in the eyes of, it, it's that God loves the misfits because the misfits know they need him in ways that sometimes the righteous and the powerful and the mighty simply don't. He does because he knows it's the misfits who want him. They're misfits and they know it. And that brings us to our next point. God wants everyone. God is the God who loves misfits. Jesus in Luke tells the story of the prodigal son who, through choices that he made, had brought himself to a place of brokenness where he's a misfit that no longer fits with his family. He no longer fits in the foreign land. He, he's at his absolute wit's end. That's to come crawling back to his father, and his father rejoices and accepts him and restores him even better than he had originally had. And Jesus, Jesus chooses to tell that story as an illustration of the heart, of the character 
of God towards misfits. And I think one of the reasons that God chose to reveal himself in this way, in this weird and wonderful misfit way, is that if he had chosen to come in the ways that we might expect, maybe even in the ways that we might want, if he had come in power and majesty with guns blazing and all of that, that would simply confirm the narrative that God is the God of the powerful, that God is the God of the righteous, that God is the God of the holy who have kept themselves sinless. God is the God of those who could check all the right boxes. But by coming in this way, by choosing to reveal himself in this way, God confirms that, yes, he is the God of the righteous and the holy, but he is also the God of the misfits. He is the God who cares about the misfits. Perhaps we should have called this series the God of even the misfits. Because in virtually every opportunity, that's what he leads with. That's how God chooses to reveal himself. I think God chose to come this weird and wonderful way to say, no, I love the losers, the misfits. I love the people who have disqualified themselves by their own actions or who have been disqualified, who have been pushed to the fringes. I love them too. In fact, I will make them central to my story in order to illustrate that that is my heart. That is my character. God does choose. Jesus does choose eventually to reveal himself to the religious elites. You remember from the story of Saul, uh, perhaps, that Saul was this Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the righteous among the righteous, a powerful man, and he was chief among leading in the persecution, the hunting down and killing of Christians. And then Jesus after he's resurrected, appears, you know, in, in majesty and power and, and miraculously to Saul, and he opens his eyes, and at that point, Saul you know, has that revelation, and he comes to Christ. But not until after the fact, not until after Jesus had revealed himself to the least, the lowest, the misfits, does he say to Paul, as he said to Matthew, come and see what life can be. Come and see yourself the way God sees you. I think it's helpful to point out that Matthew knew he was a misfit. Saul didn't. Paul didn't. Do we? I think that perhaps brings us to the most important reason why Matthew leads with the story of the Magi. God wants to be found. God is a God who wants to be found, who promises that if we seek him, we will find him. If we knock, the door will be opened. God is a God of invitation. These magi had probably tried all different kinds of ways, countless ways of experiencing God, of finding God, of seeking God. But then God reached out to them, even through their pagan practices, and called them to himself. They were seeking God and found Jesus they found the way, the truth, and the life in Jesus. I was talking to someone after the first service who has studied Zoroasterism in, in modern times because, of course, they still exist throughout the world, and particularly in India. And he said right now they still believe. They are still professional interpreters of dreams, and God is still speaking to them in dreams. God is still revealing himself and calling them to Jesus in dreams. That's true across so many different faiths. God is still moving and calling and wooing and inviting Am I saying that all roads lead to God and you just have to believe well and then you get to heaven? No. But I am saying Matthew chose to lead with the story of a group of pagan astrologers 
that God leads supernaturally through dreams and astrology, a religious practice expressly forbidden, and then leads them first to Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem. And because they are willing to follow God where he leads, they discover Jesus. And in discovering him, they worship. I'm saying that Jesus wants to be found. I'm going to pursue you in the midst of your wandering and your searching. God will lead you in your journey no matter where it takes you. If you're willing to stay in the journey. And take that journey with an open heart and an open mind and open eyes. The Magi came, it says, wanting to find God. Seeking the King of the Jews that they might worship Him. They didn't do it perfectly, but their hearts and their minds and their eyes were open to seeing God, and therefore the evidence was all around them. And in seeking God, they found Jesus. My family has a tradition that each year we watch the movie Polar Express. Anybody seen it? Yeah? A few? All right, well, spoiler alert for those who haven't. At the end, uh, the star of the show, this little boy, the star of the movie, this little boy gets a a bell. It's a sleigh bell, and he he rings it, and you hear the, the bell chime. But his mom and dad say, oh, shoot, it doesn't work because they can't hear it. They no longer believe, and therefore they can't hear the bell ring. But the boy can because he believes. And as his friends and as his sister get older, they slowly lose the sound of the bell as well. But he can still hear it because he still believes. I know it's a rough analogy, but I think there's a parallel there. I I think the Magi found God through Jesus because They believed because they were searching earnestly with open hearts and open minds and open eyes to find God. And in seeking God, they found Jesus. Will we? Scripture is also really clear that that we are able to, we can harden ourselves to God. And I think in that there's some warning for us. It's possible to harden yourself, to harden your heart, to, to search for the absence of God rather than searching for the presence of God, God will let you do that. He'll let you walk away. It's our choice. He'll stop. He'll let you stop believing until you've walked so far away that you can't even see the signs of anymore. He'll allow you to harden your heart to the point that you stop seeing God all together. At some point in my journey, my sister, my little sister actually invited me back you know, the journey, I think I've told that story before. She basically came to me and said, you're kind of a dirtball. Would you consider going to church? <laughs> we can work on our invitation techniques. <laughs> but I'm, I'm so grateful that she did. I had been away from the church for a very long time. And even when I was there, I felt like a misfit of the faith. In fact, I had been in that place so long that, frankly, it was pretty comfortable for me. I was pretty happy just living outside of it and saw no need to return. But she invited me back into it. And I'm so grateful. Because the place that she invited me was a place that I could actually bring all of me. I could bring the questions and the doubts and the baggage and even the anger. And it was a safe place for me to process those things. Where I didn't have to have all of the boxes checked before I could begin the conversation. I didn't have to pretend and smile and nod. And in searching for God and staying in that place, I found Jesus it's not always been an easy journey. It's not always been a great journey. There are times that it's been hard. There's times where I've taken great steps forward and huge steps back. But I'm continuing to seek, and now I'm doing the community of people 
with you who can help me to see, who can encourage me, and who can help me to know when I'm walking the right direction and when I'm walking away. People that can speak truth into my life. For that, I'm so grateful. Do you have that in your life? What's your journey? Where are you at? You're here. You're listening. That's a step, right? I mean, maybe you came because you think your kids need religion, but you don't really buy any of this stuff. I, I get that. That's okay. That's a step. That's another step in the journey. Take another step. God wants to be found. You can journey toward him or you can walk away. It's your choice. That's his invitation. Do you come and you sing along because that's what you do, especially at Christmas time? We don't really buy any of this stuff anymore. Increasingly, these words that are fun to sing are no longer that true for you. That's okay. God wants to be worshipped. Lean into that. Ask the questions. Allow those around you to speak these words over you. Seek God and you will find him. God will meet you where you are and if you let him, he'll take you so much further. You can journey toward him or you can walk away. God wants everyone. He wants everyone to know him and in knowing him to worship him. To experience the life that he has for us no matter who we are, what we've done, or what we've become. And I'm so grateful that my sister was able to invite me back into that journey And there are people here that probably need to be invited back into that journey. I invite you. But I will tell the rest of us that there are people in your lives who need to be invited back into that journey, maybe using better technique than my sister. But it worked. Who are those people in your life that maybe have walked away, who are frustrated, who maybe have legitimate concerns and complaints, where you can invite them gracefully and graciously to lean back in, to once again explore this person of Jesus. I'm so grateful that she invited me to come to a place where I could restart that journey safely. That's the kind of place we want to be, where you can bring all of you, even the garbage, even the junk, even the questions, the doubt, and the anger, and it's safe to process that together in community. A place that helps people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of beliefs journey together toward finding Christ. Journey together towards experiencing God with us, the God of misfits. Let me pray for us. Father God, we are so grateful for your word and for the fact that throughout the whole book, you you feature these people that have just done despicable things. Uh, And and you do that for our benefit. You do that so that we can see that, that that is who you are, that you are willing to accept even those, that you are a God who restores, who renews, who gives second chances and third chances and fourth chances. God, thank you for this season where we can remember the fact that you came, that you chose to enter into our world, and thank you for the weird and wonderful way, the misfit way in which you chose to do that. And help us to experience that reality of finding you and experiencing you, and then to bring that experience into our world. Help us to be the inviters that draw people into who you see them to be. We ask this in the name of Jesus and for your sake. Amen.